Adventures of Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 300, with Tina Connolly, Seriously Wicked and YA Book Club. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Christy Cherish. And this is Brent Bowen. Doing a little bit of a role reversal, we're having Christy try that out. Today we're joined by fantasy and science fiction author Tina Connolly. And this is our inaugural foray into our YA Book Club segments that we said we were going to do. And we actually have a special guest host, soon to be 13-year-old young woman, Riley, joined me for this interview with Tina Connolly to talk about her young adult debut, Seriously Wicked, for Tortine. And before we get into that interview, Chris and I are going to spend a little bit of time talking about a few things, some of which will be not so young adult topics, but if you include Mad Max, boy, I took my son to see that. Mad and Max is YA. Come on. You think that's YA? <laughs> well, I, I think it's what teenagers like to watch. Oh, when was... I was 13, I loved Mad Max. Oh, he loved it too. My son loved it. So wait, why don't we go ahead and start talking about Mad Max then? Okay, let's talk about <laughs> Mad Max. So uh, yeah, we ended up uh, having my my brother come over and watch my daughter so we could Becca and I, my wife, could take my son to go see it, and I I I normally screen these things through my brother. He he'll I use two things to make sure that something my children can handle certain material. First of which is an app called Common Sense Media, uh, mm-hmm. and it's a website, and it kind of it it has experts that try and peg what age level or maturity level can watch or read a given piece of material and then it has kind of a parent and child ranking as well it's like a social network in that regard and it's pretty accurate and then the second thing I use is my brother he is not accurate (laughs) and he has in fact treated us to a whole movie because he has botched the rating system on a given movie at one point in time where I didn't have time to check the app or the website This wasn't quite one of those occasions, but it it was one of those occasions where my wife was constantly sliding her hand over my son's eyes, particularly the one scene, like at the very beginning, where you have the feeding scene. That's all I'm going to say. Like, you know what's going on. Yep. Yep. Big feeding scene for the babies. Yep. So, and that's all. and, And what was funny about that was then I lectured, I lectured Becca after and said, oh, he can't see, you know, he can't see the human anatomy, but he can watch all this violence. I didn't see you slide a slide. It's a common American trade is let us watch all this violence, but can't examine the human anatomy. That'd be horrible. So it it ended up being very educational for my son. It was, it was an entertaining movie. I, I, I enjoyed, enjoyed it. What I particularly enjoyed was the villains, the same actor as uh, the villain from, or one of the, the cast members from the original. Yeah. Which I thought I was super know. cool. So. 
Yeah, what'd you that think? Fantastic. No, I, I loved the movie. That's interesting what you said. I, so I, I love the movie. It's absolutely the kind of movie I would go to see. Um, and uh, it, it also, I, I should put this out here. Maybe this is a Canadian perspective. Maybe it's not. This is absolutely the kind of movie my dad would have taken me and my brother to see when we were in our teens, uh, early, early teens, because, you know, he would have enjoyed watching it too. And, and uh, I, I actually watched, what was the, there was one movie my dad messed up on that he let me watch when I was a kid. And that, that movie was Aliens. He thought it was a phenomenal movie to let a 12-year-old watch. And I, I did love it. I, I have to admit, I did love it. I didn't sleep for a week, mm-hmm. but I loved it. So, um, but yeah, no, I, I thought it stayed true to the previous uh, Three Bound Maxes, which was great. Um, even though, you know, this is, you know, when was the last one made? 83? Yeah, 87 in the, in the 80s. So this is like, you know, this is 30 odd years later. Was Thunderdome um, that early? I thought Thunderdome was made later in the 80s. It might have been made later in the 80s because I know the first one was 77, 79. Yeah, it was late 79. And then they essentially rebooted that film and did it in the early 80s. Yep. And then they did. Yeah, so it might have been later 80s. But that's still, that's still looking at, that's still looking at 30 odd years. Yeah, it's been it's been decades since that yeah. film's that film's been made. So I I thought they did a great job. That that's one thing that I found with um when when the new Indiana Jones came out. That was something I thought that they they kind of missed out on with the with the Crystal Skull was that they lost what the other movies had done so well. And and part of it might have just been I I don't think it was just the actors. I think a lot of it had to do with um you know with with the actors getting older. I think it just a lot had to do with it was written differently and it was it was filmed differently and it was they weren't going for what they were going for with the original Indiana Jones movies. So I I, I thought in this case they did a very good job and it was the same director who mm-hmm. did the original Mad Maxes. Yeah, the sensibility was very much the same, and and obviously it was helped. The production value was was tremendous. And there were some things that were over the top that I absolutely just loved about the guitar the, player. Oh, the guitar! Yeah, there you go. The guitar player. There, there you go. go. And and it was so funny. It was I laughed out loud when you saw him, and then afterwards I'm like, I totally dug that. Yeah. And and uh, Becca was like, she asked me what was the deal with the guitar player, and I go, think about it. You go on a road trip, you bring your music, right? Yep. Why not? Yep. <laughs> Makes perfect sense to me. Yep. No. <laughs> I thought it fit so well with everything else they were doing. I loved the story they did as well. Um, I thought the plot was good. Uh, and it, it, was, it was bare bones, and I think that worked. There you go. That, that's the thing about it was uh, there's been a lot of discussion online about lack of story with the movie. That's one of the criticisms huh. of the movie. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because there are two points about this movie, well, three, and you and I've touched on that I see consistently online with a lot of the reviews. One is the overall production value of the movie and the, the action. And it works very well as essentially a two hour chase movie. No one is complaining. I mean, for crying out loud, my son, the movie critic who won't go see a movie that's below 65% on Rotten Tomatoes, even though that whole system has its flaws, it's, you know, as 98% or whatever on Rotten Tomatoes for a reason. And it's because the craft 
of the production values very well done. The other two things that are coming up with this movie is that it's a feminist movie. Yep. And then the other discussion is there's no, the complaint or criticism is there's no story. I, I think that last complaint is very invalid because it's, there is, there absolutely is a story. It's just, they haven't tried to throw the kitchen sink in. Mm -hmm. They're telling a, you know, this is an apocalyptic world. They're showing us, they're, they're basically taking a snapshot of one person. So Max trying to survive and then Furiosa and this group of girls trying to escape uh, this warlord. And I thought they did a fantastic job of melding that together and showing this snapshot. Um, every movie doesn't need to have a ridiculously complicated, every story doesn't need to have a ridiculously complicated plot. Mm -hmm. There's a real beauty in being able to tell a simple story and show a simple story and keep you entertained and engaged. Um, and I, I think they did that masterfully here. I think all the Mad Maxes did that masterfully. Well, and you you mentioned that your your sentiments there echo one of our recent guests, Ferret Steinmetz, wrote a nice blog post that echoed your sentiments almost to a T, which was saying, "Yes, there was a story. It was a simple story." Yeah, the point you mentioned, and the, then a third point being about redemption in this post-apocalyptic world where they're trying to recreate civilization in a view that's the antithesis of the one that they're in, right? So there's, yeah. and and I don't want to give away all of the plot and how they got there, right? Because that would spoil it for everyone. But Ferret draws this distinction between having a simple story and a complex narrative. And they chose a, a relatively straightforward, but they're straightforward story, but there is a story. There is a story there. Yeah, and the other the other thing I think you have to remember is that when you're writing, I, I think one of the beauties of film, uh, you know, doing film film work versus doing uh, written written work, is that film really lends itself to making a simple story that much better because you've got all that visual to play with. You know, it's it's harder to do a simple story and make it entertaining. I think, or I, I think it's it's trickier to do it when you're just writing it. Um, whereas film really lends itself to that. So no, I, I, I was very happy with Mad Max and, uh, Fury Road. So I, um, and I, I found it. So did you read the article? You mentioned the feminist thing. Did you read the article that, um, or about, there was, um, a, a number of posts that have come up in, in, you know, main media about, um, uh, somebody was complaining that it was trying to, um, force a feminist agenda or trick men into watching a feminist agenda on the big screen and stealing a part of American culture. I liked that part because it's an Australian series. But uh, did you see any of that in in Huffington Post or or because um, I I was picking it up in uh, up here north of the border. The week I've had, I saw a lot of that theme of the so I knew it was a the theme of the movie just from Twitter. I haven't been able to get any any deeper into the news. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to read a lot of these reviews or points of view until I actually saw the film. Yeah. Uh, and even at that, I saw the film and I said, well, I saw all this discussion going on, but boy, it would take a lot of convincing for me to think that there was some sort of extreme agenda there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, somebody would have to really pull me aside and just start shaking me. Uh, yeah. for me to to listen and think that there was some sort of extreme agenda there. I mean, 
I mean, we have some things going on in the the news. It, again, it was pretty simple and straightforward around what was at work there. It was uh, an escape plan for a lot of mistreatment that was certainly taking place within a given environment. Mm-hmm. And what what was interesting about it, though, was, you know, there's a point in the, well, I don't want to get into too much of this. I mean, there's a point in the film where, the mistreatment of what takes place on the road exceeds what probably was taking place and potentially in that environment because they don't show yeah. any of that. And yeah. to where you you have some additional conflict yes. that occurs as a result of uh, split opinion on what's yeah. taking place. So I, I just didn't I didn't see a lot of I didn't see a lot of that in there. I just, yeah. I just really didn't. So I, I read a few more, of, a bit more of the uh, the reports and just the articles. I, you know, more me skimming it because I, I thought it was a bit silly that somebody that they made such a big deal out of one person, you know, complaining about the movie being a uh, being feminist, being a feminist agenda. I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic that um, Charlize Theron or Theron was one of the main characters. She was starring just alongside Max. Like yeah. it really wasn't one or the other. I thought that was great. I thought it was interesting. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about um, with just, they're trying to escape a situation and part of it becomes worse um, as they're trying to escape the situation that they're, the particular type of abuse situation they're trying to escape. And I think that just sort of, the way they framed it, I think it just illustrated really well one of the side effects of that kind of deteriorating society and fighting over, you know, um, what should be, you know, what what in an apop- what in that apocalyptic society should be probably the most um, because of all the genetic stuff going on and all the you know they talk about radiation and stuff like that mm-hmm. should probably be their most treasured resource and just how it becomes a possession to mm-hmm. some. And how that just makes it worse, and and you know it's it's kind of that um, that theme of you know when you've got this warlike situation, you end up breaking the things that you were trying to achieve in the fir- or you were trying to acquire in the first place, mm-hmm. um, and then nobody gets anything, you know, which is what has been one of the themes of this particular world. That's what's kind of led to their apocalyptic, apocalyptic society. You know, mm-hmm. somebody drops a nuke, somebody invades another area, they trash the land, then nobody has any food or clean water or anything. So I, I thought that was, I thought that kept quite well with the movie. I did too. And then it also elevated, I think, that other third point around this concept of the other two characters, you know, Charlize Theron's character and then, and then Max having this emphasis on redemption for their, mm-hmm. for their varying storing lines. I mean, that whole notion of, well, if you're not going to play the way I want to play, I'm going to take my ball and go home, or we're just going to, we're going to destroy everything. If, we're going to destroy the ball. Yeah, we're going to destroy the ball. And nobody's going to be happy and everybody's going to lose. Um, I just thought that elevated the other, uh, the other portions of the storyline. So it really did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of, Somebody that is not destroying the ball, but is actually saying, hey, I have a pretty nice ball, and I'd be happy to share this with you, (laughs) are uh, a couple folks that have been affiliated uh, with our show in in some capacity, um, are Robin and and Michael J. Sullivan. And just this week, Michael's been doing the series on his blog and in some other venues called Authors Helping Authors. 
And he came out with this new concept this week called Extending a Helping Hand. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this, and we'll include a link in the show notes because we're not going to be able to to probably get into all the details, he's essentially going to be taking submissions from authors for short stories and then becoming a paying market by including a given short story that he and Robin choose from queries that are submitted and and excerpts, if not the whole work that's being submitted. And then he's going to include that in his next, as like an addendum or a component of his next novel so that that author gets some distribution and some recognition for his or her work. And and they're paying too. Like it's up yeah. to I think it's a maximum of seven hundred and fifty dollars. So it ends up for a five thousand word limit. So it ends up being like five five cents a word. Yeah, it's pro more. I mean, it's pro. It's pro. It's, it's pro, pro rate. Rates. Yeah. And even if you do the math, uh, worst case scenario, they said they would accept no works beyond uh, seventy five hundred words. So worst case, it's ten cents a word. Oh yeah, so it's fifteen. So fifteen cents is what we're. What yeah, we for thinking of. yeah, yeah, 15, for five thousand, yeah. and no worse than yeah, no worse than yeah. ten for yeah seventy five hundred words, and we'll include a link in the show notes. They're still working through particulars. They've got some additional details. The uh, submission period isn't open yet, so uh, I think he had said some it would open and be a short window because this is a a trial run for him. Who knows how many? Man, we're blathering on about it, so. Uh, who knows yeah. how many submissions they'll get? Uh, but they're going to have it's like, like a, short story market. Open yeah, the floodgates. Open the, exactly. You mean well? And then he's touting his distribution of his books at being, you know, thirty thousand to a hundred thousand potential readers. I mean, who doesn't want that? So, yeah. um, the his submission window will be about a month, and it'll be he says about July to August. But we'll include a link in the show notes, and we think that's a very cool. And Rob Metheny, who um, does some work for us. He's a contributor to the show and helps us out. Uh, he pointed us to this, and and I'm I'm glad he did because what a very cool uh, concept. And you know, a couple episodes ago, Christy, you and I were talking about how do you go out out of your way to maybe help authors that are either indie authors or underrepresented authors. And I think this is a great way that Robin and Michael are um, trying to attempt to, to figure out how to help maybe some underrepresented authors. So No, absolutely. Much more positive way. We also have some things that we should probably warn authors about, too. Yeah, right? I, I was I was actually thinking of, of getting it. I, I was just about to jump in and go, so on the flip side of that... <laughs> Robin they're offering said, a they're offering a free venue to submit their work. We also with, know that with pro rates, <laughs> with pro rates. Um, the other thing that uh, that got posted up this week is Cat um, uh, Rambo, who, for those of you who do not know, she was previously the um, the vice president for CIFWA. She is now the elected, or as of July, she is the uh, elected president for CIFWA. Um, for, for, for the rest of this year and next year. So, uh, but she had posted, I think it was on Facebook or maybe on her blog, um, talking about blacklisted. So a list of blacklisted submission publications. So where, whereas this, this is one of those scenarios I always like to warn new, like new authors that I come into contact with about, whereas that, you know, 
Robin and uh, and Michael with their their thing. It's submit your work, and if they want it, they will contact you, and then they give you money, um, and you your story goes into their distribution, and and that's sort of the way that most of the um, a credit, you know, mo- most of the um, you know up and up magazines do that. So it's free to submit. You put your submission in, and they, you know, chances are you're, there's there's a lot of rejection that tends to go through too, especially when you're learning how to write, and everybody goes through that because mm-hmm. uh, there's just a ton of people you know, um, submitting, but you've got this other group of publications that will charge you. So you, you will submit your story, but there's a fee associated with the submission or a reading fee. I say, you say submitting it's free, but then they come back to you and it's like, Hey, we really liked it. We'd like to shortlist it. But in order to go to our next set of editors, we need a reading fee. Um, and these are all, these are pretty well across the board, 100%. Um, scams. So they're, they're taking advantage of authors. So there is, um, there, uh, um, I'm not sure if it's, I think it's with Sithwa, but I know, um, uh, we'll put a link to it up, uh, Kat, cause Kat Rambo had posted about it. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's a good list of blacklisted submissions that, um, uh, submission publications that you should not consider submitting to. And I, I think one of the things that bugs me about those kinds of scenarios is they're preying on the fact that say you've submit say you're a new author and you've submitted five or ten or twenty stories and you've gotten you know say you've gotten rejections because that that's standard that's what happens um there's a huge amount of competition it's like well maybe if i just pay the reading fee i'll be able to get my start and it's like no it doesn't work like that no it doesn't work like that and that a couple thoughts there so when i attended viable paradise one of the discussions and that's where the whole notion of yogg's law developed was that money flows to the writer. Yeah. And I know that's changed a little bit. And, you know, you and I had the conversation with uh, Jody McIsaac and Jennifer Fainer Wells a couple weeks back. And we were talking about, you know, self-publishing or indie publishing's a little bit different dynamic. But when you're working with these other markets, you should not be paying anything. The market should have as part of their infrastructure the cost to support the staff to review the work. One. Two, you're going to get rejected even by your best friends. That was the oh, other yeah. thing. That was oh, the yeah. other, that's the other thing we were, you know, was a, certainly a point of conversation at Bible Paradise when I was there was that rejection happens in any corner of the world. And so I saw that even take place this week with an uh, individual that's been on the show, an author that's been on this show as a guest, and then an editor that has contributed to this show as a guest and the editor was working on an anthology and did not accept the story of the author. It was a themed anthology like the story, but the sensibility of the anthology just wasn't right. There's so much that goes into that, but that editor was the first person to congratulate that author. Once that story did find a home. Oh yeah. So it just happens all over the place for a variety of reasons. I mean, it's kind of like the same reason I probably have different reading sensibilities and personal taste on some level than Christy. Yeah. Right? And that's the way the editors work. Is that you you may have to hit multiple editors to hit the find the right uh sensibility. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you pointed out too, this just the the anthology type as well and just the feel of the anthology and how it shapes up. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely follow, what did you call it, Yogg's Law? Yogg's Law. 
Yogg's Law, that's a good one to keep up there. The other thing that touches on to self the self-publishing uh, discussions we had with, um, uh, with Jody and Jen uh, a couple weeks back, um, when I was chatting with Laura Ann Gilman, uh, which is a show that will be coming up in the future for you guys listening. Um, she's so she's sort of dual. She's an author, but she's also a professional editor. She used to be um, uh, Ace. She used to well. She's worked with a number of the major mm-hmm. five, um, the big five publishers. One of them being Ace uh, for sci-fi, sci-fi fantasy. Um, and now she freelances. And I I asked her a bit actually in the in the show near the end of the show um, just about how self-published authors should go about finding an editor, and she gets some very good tips. But one of them was check and see what their portfolio and their resume is. See see what publishers they've worked for, you know. See see what they they've worked on, you know. And um, so no, it's it's yeah. Because uh, I think I think too with self-publishing, that's a show I'd love to do at some point too. Is on how do you find an editor in um, you know, as a self-publishing author, because there's a bit of a gold rush, I think, going on yes. when it comes to that. And what I mean by gold rush for those people, it's not that self-publishing is about to implode or anything like that. It's that the gold rush, one of the famous things about gold rushes is that <laughs> it wasn't just the people who were looking for gold that made all the money. It was the people who set up the infrastructure to sell them the tools and sell them, you know, put up the the the, um, the restaurants or put up the lodges or, you know, the hardware store or the place where you get your pickaxes. So there, you know, there there's a lot of, that's where a lot of money was actually made. And I, I think we're seeing a bit of that happen now with self-publishing with regards to covers and editors and copy editors and, you know, people who package your ebook for you. So I, I think it takes, I think it's worth a show doing navigating at some point. Yeah, I think that'd be worth navigating. I mean, it's not uncommon that I even get emails every week around a webinar that will host certain freelance editors and talk about how to self-publish your book and walk you through the steps, right? Yeah. And so then those webinar folks are even selling you packages and yeah. uh, additional ebooks on how, you know, the 10 tips on how to do it. I mean, it's, like you said, it's you, you certainly have the people that are not only selling the pickaxes, but also running the brothel. Yeah, uh, that's that. There you go. That's it. That's what gold. That's that's where the gold rush money was made. It was a, it's, yeah, it's running the bra. Talk about moving away from YA. There we go. Great way to start the YA show. We'll let that play out. Um, anyway, there are some other resources you and I were t- you and I before we got online were chatting about too that we'll mention I think and share in the the show notes. Uh, yeah. Writer Beware on SIFWA's website, and then uh, there's an Absolute Right forum. I'm kind of partial to Absolute Right, and there's a Beware and kind of Scam forum uh, that exists out there that is kind of crowdsourced where people can watch out for malicious and folks that are not really meaning to to do well by you other than making a buck on their own their own behalf. So we'll we'll share some of those things. And speaking of and this probably last top main topic I think we'll touch on. You and I saw some conversation about this taking place last week, but it just didn't hit right for us to talk about it last week was some discussion around the the publishing industry and the agreements the the big five seem to be signing with the you know the main distributors like and Amazon. I, I think and I think they've all they've I think almost all if not almost all of them have now settled with Amazon that they set their own ebook prices now and we saw what we think might be a symptom 
Yes. Of, of, of that disease. I'll call it a disease. It's a metaphor, people. But um, we saw some of that take place last week and maybe a tweet that Chuck Wendig sent out. And you and I were both very curious about that conversation. Yes. Well, I think we were both following it, too. Yeah. I certainly was. Yeah. Um, and it had to do with, I think, I think the tweet that he actually sent out, and he never identified the author nope. um, or the book, which I, I think was good. That was commendable. Um, on, lo- yeah. on every, And let me tell you, there were probably 25, I'm probably exaggerating, I'm hyperbolic, um, particularly when I'm under duress, and this week's been stressful. So it, it may have not been 25, but there were a lot of people talking back and forth, and to, it was commendable that no one in that situation mention the author because I know people were looking. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, so, and, and what it was, was that debut author comes out with a 1799 ebook, um, or pre-order for an ebook and, and Chuck Wendig sort of his, his opinion on it, um, I'm paraphrasing, but was that that was a big mistake in doing the author a disservice. Um, and it was set by one of the big, one of the big five. And, I think it will be interesting to see how all of this plays out because I think it depends, and and this was sort of my thing, I think it depends on who the author is and what the book is and how much they're planning on putting it into uh, stores or displaying it because that that could change things hugely um but but yeah it's and but we're seeing this a lot more now whereas it used to be that ebooks would come out at 6.99 9.99 we're now seeing 11.99 um i think and, and you know uh we're seeing 11.99 12.99 14.99 for for new ebooks and my guess is is that it's trying to compete with um uh, it's it's so that it's competing with the physical book Mm-hmm. That the publishers are, are publishers are releasing as well, and so that the ebooks aren't completely cannibalizing the um, hardcover, the hardcover, or or the trade paperback or the physical paperback covers. Um, now, whether or not qu- that's valid, I'm not sure. That better be quite the trade paperback for that to not cannibalize that trade paperback. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better myself because that was my my thought was. There had to be a strategy tied to that, yeah. Um, because who would not want to move copies? And again, we don't know who the author is. We don't know what the title is, so it's hard. It's hard really to tell. But it, it it is worth taking note that if that is the strategy, because you don't want to affect the hardcover sales. I mean, there have been some studies that have come out, and they've been showing numbers around how the ebook sales have kind of plateaued. And yep. hardcover sales or physical sales really haven't suffered yep. tremendously after, you know, some initial dip. And so it really has to do with a, a reading preference. And I know you and I are both talking to Lou Anders about his second book in the Thrones and Bones series. You and I both received advanced reading copies of that. And Lou, Lou asked me, he said, how would you like that advanced reading copy? And I said, well, initially I said, send it digital. Because I don't mind reading digital, although I still prefer, I get through physical copies faster. But what's mm-hmm. interesting, and I sent the note back to him, I said, you know what, send it to me in physical. Because I said my kids would like to read these books. And I said my kids don't like to read, or at least my son does not like to read ebooks. He prefers yeah. a physical copy. My daughter can go either way. She's pretty flexible in that regard. But And, uh, and yeah, and I- I know, and I, I think that's a really good point too. Like, I mean, one of the things I find is that I will do either. I, I don't really prefer one over the other, but 
I got into ebooks because of the convenience factor, because a lot of the books I wanted to read were not readily available at the time. So this is maybe five, you know, five years ago that I got into ebooks. And so it was a way for me to purchase books that I otherwise probably would have never gotten the chance to read. So it just meant that I was reading more books. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I was buying less physical books. It just, I, you know, was, I could all of a sudden, hey, here's this author from Australia or, you know, from the U.S. that I've never, you know, that nobody up here has heard of. Hey, I can actually download the book. Awesome. Um, but uh, I, you know, and I think, too, there's an argument to be made in the author's favor um, from the publishing perspective of, you know, everybody's saying, oh, put the book at $1.99, put the book at $2.99. And it's like, you know, I... And, and, you know, I, I'm coming from the author perspective here, not being somebody who works in publishing, um, but it's not just, you know, I, I think the argument often is, is that, well, an ebook is cheap to produce. And it's like, well, you still have the copy editor, you yeah. still have the marketing team, you still have the art team, you still have everybody else who's had to get involved in this book. So it's not really that much cheaper for the publisher to produce it. Um, it's cheaper on the distribution front. For yes. sure, um, which which definitely um, you also see that though reflected in royalties that you get back compared to a physical book versus a um, versus a digital book. Um, but so I, you know, it's so. But if you look at it, if you look at what say you've got a two ninety nine book, and an author's getting twenty five percent of that cover or twenty five percent of that sale, and then you've got a physical book and the author's getting ten to fifteen percent of that sale. And I don't know if people then realize that, or, or roughly that's what they're getting, but um, I think there's a lot of variability depending on who you're published with and who you're, you know, and uh, all sorts of details and such. But Who you are. Who you are, yeah. <laughs> if, if you're keeping, if you're only selling those ebooks at two ninety nine or one ninety nine, you have to sell, you're realistically going to have to sell 20,000 copies just to make back your, a, a modest advance. And you're actually making more money off the 15% sale of the physical books, even though you're only getting a 15% off the, you know, that's what your, your sort of cut of it is, is the 15% off of the physical book. You're making a lot less money off of that 299 ebook and you're having to sell a lot more of them to make up um, what your publishers advanced you. So I, I think an ebook is worth more than a dollar ninety nine, two ninety nine. I think it's awesome when they go on sale, and I'm always tweeting whenever you know I see an author I love whose book's gone on sale for a buck ninety nine. It's like, quick, buy it, buy it, yeah. um, buy it, and I, I buy them too. Like that's you'll see my dollar ninety nine binges, but um, and those are great because I'll find new authors, mm-hmm. and that's the way I find new authors. But once I found an author I've like liked and I've spent two ninety nine on their or a dollar ninety nine on their ebook, I am more than happy to go and spend nine ninety nine on their next book or another book that's come out because for me it's, it's worth it to, to do that. And I know how the author's getting paid and stuff. So I, I think it's more complex than just stick the book at two ninety nine. It is w- way more complex. And one of the great resources I'll, I'll, I'll point people to it. Speaking of the discounted ebook and alerting folks to doing that is SF signal. They yes. do, they do a compendium basically. I don't know if it's every week, but they do it several times a month where it's kind of a compendium of all the books under $4.99 that you can find in ebook. And it includes self-pubbed yeah. works as well as uh, publishing house works. And to your point, it's generally uh, first titles in a series, but it's a great way to get started in a series. And I mean, 
I think I picked up Ready Player One because I had not read it yep. in, in one of those compendiums. Um, yep. So it's a, it's a great way to get introduced to a book that's been out for some time. It's no different than anything else. You have, you have in any other industry or consumer good, you have early adopters and they pay a premium. And yep. those, that, those that come later uh, and they're not in the know, don't, don't pay that, that premium. It's, it's, I mean, that's pretty common in electronic goods and what have you. So, but interesting conversation from Chuck and others. I think James S.A. Corey, although I don't know who runs that uh, Twitter account since that's a, that's a tandem uh, author <laughs> company, but um, <laughs> who was actually commenting on that? And Sam Sykes, I know, was in, in some of that discussion. And yep. uh, Patrick Hester from SF Signal was part of that. Uh, going on back and forth about uh, some of their displeasure, too. So I would yeah. encourage folks to, you know what, I, I actually have the URL to the to the tweet, kind of the tweet stream, so I'll put that in the show notes for folks that are interested. Well, we're running long, and this is supposed to be a uh, our introduction to the, to the YA segment. I think that show's only going to be about half an hour. I put this show at about an hour. But before we go, the other thing I want to make mention of, because we only have, by the time this show drops... We'll only have a couple days for the first round of this, and we've started to see entries pick up, so I, I want to make sure people get their entry in, is Tim Ward's Scavenger Evolution uh, giveaway is going on now, and he's authoring, we've been having this discussion on preference of the format in which you receive a title. He has multiple formats available as part of that giveaway. and But you want to make sure you get your entry in. So take a moment, come out to... Either episode, it'll be 298, 299, or this episode, episode 300, and get your entry in for, for Tim's giveaway. Definitely. Any, yeah. Any, before we sign off, Christy, anything else? No, no. I, you know, I'm reading. I'm still having a horrible time with, um, I, I shouldn't say it, I'm having an awesome time with Patrick Rolfus' is The Name of the Wind. Um, I've barely made any progress, so I'm not going to finish this book by the end of the month, which sucks, but I'll be writing about that in my, my little update and, you know, um, reading a lot more books. I've got more, more arcs that have come up, which is awesome. That, that is awesome. And I am going to butcher the title, but I am reading Robert Charles Wilson's The Affinities. Oh, right now. And it's a book ostensibly, they say it's about social media. It is certainly about community and this idea of communities that get formed. Um, but it's supposed to be kind of an allegory for social media near future. And it was sent to me, you know, it was sent to us as, as uh, one of our, our, it was just sent to us. <laughs> from tour <laughs> and and I've been reading and you know I, I do a lot of social media for my day job so I I said okay I need an allegory for social media so I've been in it and I've been really enjoying it I don't I don't know if we'll officially have him on the on the show in any capacity and I don't write a lot of book reviews based on all the other things all the other strings I'm managing but I might manage might muster a book review out of out of this book. It came out in late April, and it was one of our books received. And out of my stack, I said, "You know what? This again, sensibility thing. This this is something I'd like to read. I'm gonna been reading all this other stuff, but so I'm gonna read something I want to read. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> so I picked it up out of the stack and started reading it, and I'm in I'm enjoying it. So I'll add it certainly to the Goodreads list. 
I'll add to that. I did start. I similar similar reasons. Um, I started a. Um, I started another book, um, audiobook actually, and it's um, Larry Correa's Hard Magic series. So, and I, I the first book is Hard Magic, and it's um, it's a really fun nineteen nineteen thirties nineteen forties I guess uh, style, you know, hard boiled kind of urban fantasy type type book, and it's 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 oh, I wanted something adventurous and fun in that. That's been giving me the. Um, that's been filling that particular niche right now. Awesome. Cool. Well, until next time, folks. Everybody, take care. Bye, bye, guys. This episode is brought to you by Scavenger Evolution by Timothy C. Ward. In the future, sand divers search the depths for the lost city of Danvar and the truth behind their bleak existence. Dive Master Rush hasn't dove since he lost his infant. A job offer turns from an escape to a trap, and the lure of a hardened heart to survive like anyone else would. One dive leads to another. Farther and farther from the surface, death and evolution change his world. He'll have to change too, or watch his wife rise without him. Inspired by Hugh Howey's World of Sand, and written and sold with his permission, Scavenger Evolution takes the landscape of Dune and throws in the pacing and thrills of Alien. Available at all major online retailers in ebook and print, including signed copies direct from the author at spikepub.com. To learn more and order online, come to the show notes, episode 300, and click on the image that you'll see for Scavenger Evolution by Timothy C. Ward. Everyone, this is Brent Bowen, and first off, we have a special guest host with me this time around. I want to introduce Riley. Riley, say hello. Hi. Riley is a soon-to-be seventh grader and friend of the program, and she's going to be joining us from time to time for a special YA book club series on the show. And you might be wondering, I know I've talked about this in prior episodes, but you might be wondering why we've decided to embark on this endeavor. And part of the thinking was I've attended, and our guest I'm sure has as well, attended a lot of conventions where there's been discussion in panels and what have you around where the young fans are. And so one of the things we wanted to do with the show was get young fans like Riley involved directly. So we've decided to, to have Riley on the show and and she, I've seen her in action interview different people, so we thought she'd be great to have on and come ask some questions of authors. And Riley, I know you're a big, you're a big geek and nerd like me, so and you and you wear that badge yeah. proudly. So, yeah. what's one of your favorite th- types of stories to read? Um, I love pretty much anything about Greek mythology. I just that interests me so much. It's awesome. I just recently read a few books about them, and so it's just kind of all new to me, but still really interesting. All right. Well, fabulous. Well, I think Riley's going to – well, I know Riley's already eaten alive in one, almost one sitting the, the, the book we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. So our inaugural guest for our YA Book Club series is the author of the Iron Skin trilogy from Tor Books, of which her debut in that series was a Nebula finalist. Her short works have appeared in numerous publications from Lightspeed to Strange Horizons, and she is also an accomplished narrator 
who runs the Parsec Award-winning Flash Fiction podcast. And if you guys don't know who she is at this point, I've been teasing (laughs) people on the show with her uh, Parsec Award promos for weeks. I don't know if you knew that or not, special guest, but I've been teasing them with your Parsec Award promos. But her podcast is Toasted Cake. And but we're not going to talk to Tina Connolly about any of those things. <laughs> Instead, because Riley's on the show and Tina's on the show, we're going to talk about her new release from Tortine, Seriously Wicked. Tina, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm really pleased you've been running my Parsec promo. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, of course, <laughs> of course, you're one of my favorites from a story and. Uh, from a story standpoint, I'm so pleased to see that you're a nominee again this year. So we're going to talk about Seriously Wicked and before, uh, a matter of protocol first, uh, because you have me and you and mm-hmm. I, you know, I've spoken in, in real life and on the show before. Can we call you Tina or do, because I have the younger guest, do we need to do we need to do Miss Tina through this thing? <laughs> Please call me Tina. Okay. Okay. Did you hear that, Riley? Yeah. Tina all the way through. <laughs> so we're good. Well, let's start with Seriously Wicked. This is your first foray into young adult, correct? Yes. Okay. Well, tell our listeners about it. Seriously Wicked is just a, a fun, lighthearted story about an ordinary high school girl who's stuck living with a seriously wicked witch. Now, the witch is always trying to take over the world, and things in this book get complicated when the witch summons a demon and he accidentally escapes. And he gets into the cute new boy band boy at school. And our poor heroine, our overworked, underwitched heroine Cam, has to save the day. Which means she might have to try learning a little magic herself. Well, very good. And you were talking about Cam and her identified stepmother or aunt or but she has a complicated relationship with her caretaker let's just call her her caretaker yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah your protagonist cam has a very complicated relationship with her caretaker how would how would you describe that relationship yeah well one of the jumping off points for the story was the idea of sort of a modern rapunzel story i mean this is like a very very small seed in the idea when I when I sat down and it just started pouring out one day. So uh, Cam, Camellia, tells us pretty early on in the book that the, the witch she lives with, her guardian, the wicked witch Saruman, stole her away from her real parents when she was a baby, and that's why she's stuck here doing all the witch's terrible chores and all sorts of horrible things. So the relationship is... Yeah, it's definitely complicated because Witch Saruman is definitely a thoroughly wicked witch. I read a, a review of it recently, which was like, you know, witches lately have been getting kind of a um, a nicer side to them. You know, you have like Wicked, where you explore uh, the the good side of the Wicked Witch of the West, and this book is not that, which which was fun because yes, yeah, she's a she does have her good points, I will say, but you know, she is a wicked witch, and that meant she was great fun to write because she's always doing terrible things the worst things i can think of the better (laughs) (laughs) and cam absolutely does not want to end up like her so we have you know a pretty strong um, problem in the relationship from page one well and you you mentioned that about sarman really wanting to punish cam in some in some of those scenes and you know you hear about uh 
punishing your protagonist from time to time. Was yeah. was there a particular scene that you just giggled at yourself as as you were writing it? But when you were having the <laughs> opportunity, I'm thinking of one where you have the pumpkin attack. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> in, the, in the book, and a friend fortunately helps Cam out, right? But yes, it, was so there true. a particular particular scene in there that you just found yourself giggling at yourself as you were putting? Yeah, it you know. <laughs> I have to say, I'm I'm so terrible with this book because <laughs> I it, I mean I'm so embarrassed to admit it, but I just I I start laughing at this book whenever I I sit down to work on it, and um, yeah, I'm I'm one of those authors. I I'm just sit there giggling at everything I'm doing on this book. Um, it, it was so much fun, but yes, it was. Uh, I came up with all these horrible things for Starman to do to Cam, like shortly after the book opens and Cam gets in trouble with her. Uh, Sarman turns her hands into cooked noodles uh, and just all kinds of random things. There's, she mentions a time when Sarman, let's see, turned her into 1,500 worms and made her compost the garden. I mean, I just kind of get to go as random and, and peculiar and off the wall as I can think of, which is really fun. Yeah, they were particularly fun, but what was interesting about that too, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna flip the question or, or go sure. 100, 180 degrees on you, and and part of this is you know we're having this conversation on the heels of of Mother's Day. I know, right? Right. So in the book, though, you're reading this really from Cam's point of view, and you did what I thought was an excellent job of capturing that angst without being whiny. Certainly, of Cam being a a very approachable protagonist in that regard, but I couldn't help as I was going through it and thinking there's a method to the madness with Sarman and this whole notion that reminds me of just the traditional mother-daughter relationship or parent relationship where you don't always understand the logic of your parent until probably you're a parent yourself. And so yeah. what what about the that relationship between caretaker and child did you want to explore or mother and daughter did you want to explore in this book? Yes, well, you know, it, particularly to what you mentioned just there, I would say that one of Sarman's justifications for being so mean and horrible to Cam is she keeps saying that the witch world is very cruel and they are not kind to anybody who's weak. You can't be weak. So um, she certainly, you know, has her own justifications that she does that she does come out with a lot. You know, I end up writing about families a lot, and I I, I think we probably talked about this. Someone I was here for Iron Skin. My own family is is awesome, but I'm still I'm really interested in those relationships between the people you're supposed to be closest to and how they do work and how they don't work. And Iron Skin and Copperhead, I was writing a lot about sister relationships. And yeah, this book is really about, you know, the um the the mother-daughter sort of relationship that you've got going on between Cam and her her guardian witch Sarman. And I think a lot of people can relate to the idea that you might not necessarily want to grow up to be exactly like your parents. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Riley, Riley's over here. You can't see this. Riley's over here nodding her head. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. No, I mean, I think we all have that because even no matter how much you love your parents, there's going to be little ways. Even even just little ways that you're different. That you're like, you know, even if you can say, yes, I wanted, I wanted do this thing like my mom or my like my dad but there's this other thing that I'm definitely not going to do I don't agree with that and I don't want to become like that so what was kind of fun with this book is I I got to kind of take these these little frustrations that we all experience and really 
blow them up, you know, and, and, and show that, that, you know, that dilemma, but large and, and big because Cam does not want to be a wicked witch. So it's not just a little thing that she doesn't want to be like her mother. It's this, it's this huge way in which she doesn't want to be like the person that she's living with. You know, and there's a lot of tensions inherent in this sort of putting a wicked witch against, uh, you know, Cam with her, with, without, who doesn't have powers and doesn't want to have them. Um, and she has to do a bunch of, like, magical chores for the witch, like muck out the dragon's garage and find a source of goat's blood, I mean, which we can all relate to. <laughs> so she never has any time for herself. And, you know, I was the oldest of four, so... I know I'm drawing on some of my own frustration at that age from things like, you know, babysitting, right, and, and, mm-hmm. and chores. And, you know, again, I, I, did I really have as much reason to be as upset as Cam? No, nobody was sending me off to Brazil to bring home some, you know, elf toenails or whatever it is. But what was so fun about Cam's story is taking the ordinary stuff and blowing it up super big. Well, and I know Riley had, you touched on the differences around, around Cam not wanting to be, to be magical. I know you had a que- I know you had a question for Tina about that. So I was wondering, why are there so many characters in the book with magical or paranormal abilities? But why was it important that Cam didn't want to be one of them? That's a really good question. And I think, I mean, part of the answer is obviously because I sat down one day and I thought, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, that's really interesting. So part of the idea was because it jumped into my head that, boy, this would sure suck to be an ordinary girl living with a mom who always wants to take over the world. But I think your question gets to the heart of why I found it so fulfilling and fun to write and easy to write is because there's obviously a lot of tension inherent in in that question. You know, um, is that the extremes of the the magical witch and the non-magical girl? And so when Cam realizes she's going to have to try to stop the witch and get the demon out of the poor, helpless boy band boy. She's going up against a lot. Yeah, going on with the magical uh, like abilities, how did you decide to have the phoenix, dragon, and demon as elementals? So, so I really like world building, and I really like having um, interesting magical systems in there. And it was, it was nice to have something... To, to come up with a sort of elementals idea as something that the witches couldn't do. So then I had like a little, you know, okay, here's, here's, a, here's something that will be a sort of cap to the witch's power. Like the reason she has to call a demon is because she can't manipulate the phoenix. Uh, dragon phoenix and demon fell, these three a witch cannot dispel, is what she says in the book. And um, so, so having, having these things that a witch couldn't do, I had little wyvern characters and silver blind, so this wasn't my first time getting to put <laughs> dragonish things in, but it was my first time getting to put in phoenixes and demons and come up with uh, you know, the rules for those in my particular world, so that was fun. Did you let story dictate choice on which magical creatures you would have, or did you kind of pick that from, oh, I want to introduce these magical characters and then kind of weave those into story? Because I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I was thinking, I'm thinking about that question, Tina, as the phoenix is the perfect creature to blow up a high school. Yeah. 
yes, you know, I, <laughs> yes. Um, I think that this book in particular, it was, there was something, it was, I know I keep coming back to saying, oh, it was just fun, it was fun, but uh, there was something that was just so much fun about writing this that it was really like things were just jumping into my head and jumping onto the page. And then there were a lot of drafts. There were, once I'd finished it, I, I've re- revised this novel a lot. Um, so there was a lot of like going back and making it, making it all hang together. But I think, it, you know, it's kind of a process of, you know, okay, well, there's something horrible is going to happen to high school. What's going to happen? Eh, you know, it's going to blow up or something. Well, it's going to blow up. Oh, there's a phoenix. Okay, that's why it's going to blow up. And then I go back here. You know what I mean? So it's kind of uh, everything just kind of started jumping into one place. And then, oh, well, this is why that's happening. You know, and it just kind of kept fitting together. It has a real uh, farce structure, which I, which is fun to me, like just the, you know, things things start getting crazier and crazier and crazier, you know, as, as, as it mounts up, which was kind of fun. So why do you think Jenna really liked the dragons? Like, why did, how did you decide that she would like the dragons? She would like the dragons, yeah. You know, and she's also swoony about unicorns, so I'm really hoping that she gets to see one of those fuzzy llama unicorns in, in a, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I could introduce them in, a, in one of book two or book three because I know Jenna wants to see them. I've seen the girl from Despicable Me that carries around the, the unicorn now all of a sudden with Jenna with her cropped dark hair. and. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> oh, you haven't seen the original? No. Oh, you'll have to you'll have to watch that. There's. Uh, I will. I will. I mean, she's she the the girl in Despicable Me. She's a young child. How old would you guess, Riley, that she is? Probably five or six. Five. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So she's definitely not Jenna. But when you when you had her swing over the unicorn, that's the visual that popped. <laughs> that's the visual that popped in my head. And I think based on this book, you would probably like the sensibility of that movie. <laughs> I probably would. I've heard good things about it. The question is, did it come out in the last five years? Because I haven't actually gone to the movies since the, the first kid was born. Yes, it's a rental. It's a rental at this It's point. a rental? Okay, I can find it. Yeah. So the question was about Jenna and why she squeezed over dragons, huh? Yeah, you know, Jenna was so much fun because so she's always kind of wanted to believe that some of those things are real. Um you know, she sees auras, and, and she wants to believe. She she would love there to be something a little more magical in her life. So it turns out that their best friendship is ends up to be a perfect way into that because she's really happy when Cam can show her that there, she has an actual dragon in her garage. It's kind of like, yes, my life is complete now, you know. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was fun to have her as the foil to Cam of Cam would just, you know, prefer that that nothing from the witch world actually existed. And Jenna, who's always wanted to kind of find magic around the next corner, is so delighted to find, you know, here's a dragon and maybe I'll get to go see unicorns one day. Yeah, that contrast is a lot of fun. Why did you have the unicorn as a llama? Because most, like, (laughs) usual unicorns are horses. So that was just, I was like, whoa, that is cool. There were a lot of times I was like, okay, how can I turn this just one more tweak. How can I push it around the next corner? So it was always kind of like trying to top my own jokes, but in a world building sense. So it's like, Hey, I can show you about unicorns. Unicorns, unicorns are real, you know? Oh, you know, they're like horses. No, well, they're like llamas, you know? So it's kind of like, I can just keep turning the corner a little bit and a little bit. And so I think that's how they ended up being like, uh, fuzzy llamas. But I also like the idea along with the dragon, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff, 
is here living side by side. So then, I, then it was, you know, I come up with different ways for why you haven't seen dragons. Well, dragons are hard to see. They're, you know, they're, they're kind of invisible and they're kind of blue. And you, you know, you just, you have to know how to look to see a dragon. And, you know, why don't we see unicorns? Well, they look like llamas and pixies look like frogs and, you know, some of this. So there's a lot of stuff that's, that is just hidden right around the corner. And it, and you're talking about this pushing the humor envelope. Just what one more thing, or what's mm-hmm. around the corner? And I wanted to ask you about that because you're with Iron Skin. Those were more certainly serious. Uh, certainly had a more serious tone to them. Mm-hmm. And did you have any trepidation? How did you go about approaching the humor for Seriously Wicked? Or were were at this point were you just ready for it? Into motherhood. Into motherhood, you're like, I need some levity, folks. Right, right. Um, Well, the funny thing is, is I actually wrote Seriously Wicked before writing the Iron Skin trilogy. Okay. Um, Yeah, so I I wrote this book actually in 2008, and then I queried some agents. I signed with my current agent pretty quickly on it, but then it was early 2009, and if you remember 2009, like, no one was buying anything. So um, they're like, we love this. You know, nobody's buying any books. Um, yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah, it was really sad, actually. We don't know uh, if we're going to be in business next month. Yes. Exactly. I know. <laughs> it's really horrible. I mean, in retrospect, I'm really glad that it worked out the way it did because by the time Iron Skin finally, so I went off and wrote Iron Skin and I sold that in 2010. And by the time it came out in 2012, people were buying books again. So, I mean, in retrospect, that was a lot better than actually having my first book come out, say in 2009, which, you know, happened to some friends of mine. And that would be, that would be kind of distressing. Um, But, you know, I love this book and I went back and I kept going back to it. You know, I'd write Iron Skin and then I'd be like, Oh, I could just pull out this this book I love and kind of like just look at it a little bit. You know, here I am, like one in the morning. No, I was just laughing at my my jokes. So um, I just kind of would keep going back to it because I still loved it so much. And um, then we we finally I finally pitched it to my editor at the same time that I was pitching her on the idea of Silverblind, the third Iron Skin book. And luckily she was willing to make the leap into humor with me that she loved it too, because like you said, it is totally different from the Iron Skin trilogy. I mean, I mean, I guess yes and no. Cause so, you know, a couple of people have said to me, well, you're still dealing with a lot of, you still talk about some of the same things like finding power within yourself. And, you know, um, you know what I mean? I mean, you can, you can see like, a lot of the same things I believe are true in each book that we can learn, learn how to be better people and learn how to do things on our own and things like that. But obviously the Iron Skin trilogy is very serious and um, it's been very nice to have something that's just super fun come out because it's, it's a lot easier to like, uh, you know, write, write silly blog posts about like, Four things were crazy about on Witchnet this week. That was one of the blog posts I did, like a, like a clickbait article, you know. So it's 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 fun, and I I actually I love writing humor, and I just think there isn't a ton of interest for it in the short story market. I have written a couple of funny short stories. I, Alex Schwartzman picked one up for the UFO Anthos, and and that one was recently on Podcastle, and it's about a group of moms who are all dealing with tiny preschoolers that have superpowers, and um, it was very funny to me because I was dealing with my three-year-old at the time and sometimes felt like he was a supervillain, even though he wasn't. Um, 
Yeah, that being so, super cute is their defense mechanism. That's that is their defense mechanism after they have destroyed the preschool. Yes, yes, then exactly. They, they, they smile at you. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> like oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so I'm. I was really pleased that that my editor picked up this one and then two sequels because it it is. It's a lot of fun to to work on something funny and just just fun. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm, I'm going to have to find the link for the show notes, and so I'm, I'm glad this book found a home, and certainly that you're going to have a trilogy out of it. That There was a study I read where they actually uh, surveyed children or kids, and I don't know how you feel about this, Riley, but you know, if you would rather pick up a, a more often than not a book that has humor in it or a book that's, and you're an audience of one, so you're... <laughs> your focus group of one, but I was reading a survey and I'll, I'll have to link to it where they were talking about middle grade and, you know, fringe YA, early YA books. And kids were saying there, there aren't enough humorous books out there to choose from. So I don't know before I got you this to read is, can you recall anything that's, that's humorous that would also be kind of, you know, with science fiction or anything, even other than the, um, what are the, the Jeff Kinney books? My son uh, reads The Diary of a Wimpy Kid those books. Yeah, those oh. are good. And then, um, as I said, I like Greek mythology, so the Percy Jackson series, and just, they were they were funny, but they kept, like, with the theme at the same time, which I thought, um, you also did really good in your book, and that was just something, yeah, I enjoyed that, because, yeah. So, you, Tina, you had mentioned that this is going to be a trilogy, so what can we look forward to that you can share in book two? You 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 tipped us off on Jenna a little bit and maybe maybe some llama love. Llama. Um, llama. You know, llama, llama, unicorn, mama, I know, something, something, yeah. Um, there's a nursery rhyme in there? What? No, no there's, those, there's those picture books, Llama, Llama, Red Pajama, llama. that I, oh, yeah, I was yeah. reading to my son. Yeah, yeah. like... Well, there must be something there about unicorns. Um, you know, it's so it's not a trilogy in any sense. Like, it's only a trilogy in the sense that I've sold them three books. So in my head, it's actually like an ongoing series. I could, I could write these forever. They're, so they're, each one is going to be a standalone where basically Cam has to stop some new crazy scheme of the witches. I did work up outlines for, for two and three that I've sent my editor that I'm working on. I can't say a lot okay. about the next ones, even though I'd love to, because I'm in the middle of writing it. And when I'm in the middle of writing it, it's also, it's kind of like a soap bubble in my head that I can't, I can't really pop, but, um, I think I did uh, this to you last time. Yeah, I know. Probably. So I was like, I can't tell you anything about Copperhead. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's about how that goes. <laughs> okay. Well, very, very good. Well, we're going to bring you back to this book. Cause I know there, there's a question and you were talking about how, your clickbait blog tours that you've been going oh, yeah. on, which mm -hmm. have been fun, by the way, I forget which the name of the blog. You can maybe recall this better than I can. There was a blog, and Riley would probably love this too. I'll, I'll make sure to point at Riley's direction. Is the blog post you did where the blogger had you pick out a novel for oh. each of your characters? Yes, that was on a blog called Alice Marvels. Alice and, Marvels, yes. yes Alice, Alice Marvels. Marvels, and she said, "Yeah, recommended." She she gave me the idea of recommended reading lists, and I thought that was awesome, and I ran with that. Yeah, no, I, th I thought that was great. So I know Riley has a similar question for you 
uh, that'll probably be clickbait related being based <laughs> on Devin. So I'll let I'll let her ask that. Um, so when you have regular Devin and demon infested Devin, um, <laughs> when Cam always feels like they're boy band boys, how did you envision like making them like each version? So, That's so, awesome. yeah. So you think what are you're asking out of this? What boy band each Devin would be yeah, in? Like, they'd be in different. Like yeah. They'd be in like, a different uh, boy band. That makes perfect sense. They, they would. Uh, <laughs> Riley, you're probably actually going to have to help me with this because I have to tell you, I am a geek, and what I listen to is Broadway musicals. <laughs> so I'm woefully behind on my boy bands. But um, someone did ask me how I would cast this as a movie. And the closest one I could come up with for Devin was if it were 10 years ago, I would totally cast uh, Zac Efron in the role because mm. he was so awesome in High School Musical and other things, but he, mm -hmm. he can act and sing and he's funny. And I thought he would be really good at pulling off the switch from like sweet boy, Ben boy, Devin to the demon who is, you know, like sort of an over-the-top bad boy who likes his colors flipped up and shaking his hips like Elvis, you know. And I think I'm going to have to turn to you. Do, do you have any suggestions on the, who, who would you cast as, as a boy band boy, one or two of them? Uh, probably as regular Devin, maybe a One Direction or someone more, like, mm -hmm. more calm on it, but they're still pretty popular. Mm -hmm. um, and then demon-infested Devin, I'm not really sure. <laughs> there was some emo mention I know yeah. in the in the book yeah. there. He almost is graduating from traditional boy band at that point to uh it'd almost be like a Maroon Five kinda, of, wouldn't it be? Yeah. Probably. Kind of a swarmy I wanna date a supermod I wanna be yeah. I wanna be hanging around supermodels. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> still still got very pop. Right, still Maroon Five's very pop. Yeah, a little older boy band. Yeah, one well, yeah. nature. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, very yeah. good. Well, very good. We'll we'll have to point folks to the Alice Marvels uh, bit too, because I I liked I I did get a kick out of that when you came up with the reading list for each for each character. So that was such a brilliant idea. I was like, I'm going to steal this for future books because that that is fun. Yeah, that's something you could definitely serialize too. Yeah, ac across any book. Yeah, and, re and really get to the heart of the character. Yeah, too, which is yeah, yeah. It was one of the characters. So I said for which Simon did. Uh, so I, I say in the book that she's got like this mixed in with her spell books, and she's very proper and very terrifying. And mixed in with her spell books, she has these battered romance novels, you know, and they're all like <laughs> media tie-ins for her favorite show, which has this demon hunter guy on it and um so i said i i said we should we should send sarman some supernatural fanfic and see what she thinks of that <laughs> that would be awesome i think fans would get a big kick out of that that was a very <laughs> that was a very telling moment in the book too because at that point didn't cam pick that up and say "Ooh, gross we like right? the same. <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> the last thing you want to know is that your mom thinks the same cute person is cute that you do you know like Oh no, the witch likes that person. No. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, that was yeah. That that scene was awesome. I I enjoyed that scene. Yeah, that was definitely very funny. That was just hilarious. Yeah, Tina, you have anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners that uh, that we may have missed? Oh, well, I could tell you about my tour stops. <laughs> well, yes, please do because I know <laughs> I'm excited about one. 
I mean, I'm excited about all of them, but I'm excited about one in particular because we get to see you in person. That would be lovely. That would be lovely. <laughs> well, tell, tell <laughs> I'm, us, I'm please. I'm looking forward to that. Yes. Uh, okay. Well, I have been in, in Portland and San Diego and Seattle, but I think by the time this airs, I will still have a couple left. And one is going to be pretty cool because it's going to be here in Portland and it's going to be a five-author panel with five other YA authors from Portland, including Fonda Lee, who was just on your show a couple weeks ago, I think. So, I mean, that's going to be a lot of fun uh, here in Portland. And then, yes, then I will see you, and maybe both of you, at um, either the Campbell Conference in Lawrence, Kansas, or I'm doing a signing at the Raven Bookstore in Lawrence on June 18th, which is my hometown I mean, Lawrence is my hometown, but I could practically say the bookstore is my hometown, too. You know that is. <laughs> and uh, I'm very excited to do that. So uh, anyone in the area should totally come to that. Well, and we will. I will certainly see you at the Campbell Conference, and we'll see if I can make that a double visit and go up to the Raven Bookstore, too. I love that bookstore. It's been, that was it's, great. Yeah, it's been too long since I've been, since I've been in it. So... Well, Tina, I will definitely look forward to I can't believe it's just a couple of weeks from now. It's a month from the That's Campbell. actually kind of frightening to tell and me that. It is really frightening. Yeah, well, they just, they just released the finalists today, just a couple hours ago for the Sturgeon I saw that. Campbell that Awards. is so exciting, yes. So I will make sure to link to those as well, but I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks at the Campbell Conference and maybe meeting the, the, maybe meeting the little ones at some point. Oh, but, yes. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with both me and Riley. Thank you so much, and it was, it was a pleasure to meet you, Riley. This is so awesome to have the, the Y Middle Grade podcast spinoff. How wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This is awesome. It's such a great experience. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Tina. All right. Thank you, guys. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>